Hello again, and a warm welcome to this special series of the Hive podcast, featuring the interviews from my new book, Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the ideas transforming the world of business, brands, and beyond. For more information and resources on today's episode, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash the Hive podcast. And for more information around the book, please visit businessunusualthebook.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I speak with Toby Daniels, Chief Innovation Officer at Adweek and the founder of Social Media Week. Working at the intersection of technology, media and marketing for over two decades, Toby is a thought leader in media, marketing and technology and has been featured in mainstream and trade media, including articles on CNN.com, The New York Times, The Next Web, Huffington Post, Adweek, PSFK and Fast Company. Having served as the co-founder and former CEO of Crowdcentric Media, a global media and events company, Toby is an advisor to a number of companies and speaks regularly at conferences and has given talks at PDF Latin America in Chile, Social Media Brazil, the Co-Creation Conference in Phoenix, and South by Southwest. Toby, one of my favourite mavericks. Um, it's a real pleasure to be interviewing you today. Wow, maverick. First time I've heard that. I'll take it. <laughs> so from your perspective, I'm, I'm going to launch in with the question I ask everyone. Given that we are currently having this conversation in December 2020, and it's going to go out in September 2021, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche now? And where might you imagine that we'll be in 2021? Which I, I know that's a really awful question to kick you off <laughs> well I think a good place to start is my own human psyche and then sort of extrapolate from there and make lots of sort of like wild generalizations but I mean I think <laughs> that obviously you know this year has been probably one of the most extraordinary that that any of us will experience in in our lifetimes and there's not a precedent necessarily for what we have experienced. And so we have to kind of start there and we have to kind of give ourselves permission uh, to not be okay, you know, to, to, to um, be struggling um, mentally, um, motivationally, you know, and, and I think the reason why we have to, to give ourselves permission and for it to be okay is because this is not normal. Mm. Um, someone said something really beautiful, which I, I, I repeated many times. Unfortunately, I can't remember who said it, but they said that we're not in the same boat when we're kind of going through these types of global pandemics, but we are weathering the same storm, hmm. right? My experience is not necessarily going to be the same as yours, but we are connected to a larger experience, which is impacting us in, in so many extraordinary ways. And so I think that, first of all, giving ourselves permission to not be okay, connecting to and really deeply investing in understanding how this is impacting our mental health. And I think that you have to start with yourself before you can start to think about others. And I think it was a 
CEO friend of mine said to me one time when he was talking to his team and he was trying to help them and provide support and guidance through this time. And he said, number one, I want you to take care of yourself. Number two, I want you to take care of the people around you. Because if you can take care of yourself and you can take care of the people around you, then and only then can you start to think about um, how you take care of our clients, Mm. like professionally, right? So yeah, giving yourself permission, taking care of yourself in terms of your mental health, then thinking about the ways in which you take care of the people around you so that we can then you know start to think about the bigger picture and th- start to think about those that are being sort of hugely impacted by this and think about the ways and if we possibly can, like how can we help them? But I think if you talk about the psyche of where we are today, I think it's just really important that we we recognize these different steps that we need to take before we can start, you know, concentrating on and thinking about the sort of the bigger picture. Mm. And then the second part of your question was sort of to do with, like, where do I think we're going to be in mm. sort of September of next year? Yeah. Well, you know, um, we'll be coming out of this experience, mm. you know. Um, and by that, I mean, we will hopefully, uh, and if, if the vaccine does its job and if enough people take it then we will begin a process of unlocking our local communities we'll start to kind of go out we'll start to connect in person again probably in small groups initially and it will just start to kind of expand and get larger and you know we will hopefully by the latter part of next year and by September 2021 be at a place when the world starts to look a little bit like the way that it did pre-COVID, mm. but with a few really important caveats. And and those caveats are that this isn't about going back, you know, things returning to the way that they are. That's never going to happen. Mm. So when things do open up and we start to kind of connect to a semblance of normality, we also have to connect to this idea that, the new reality that we are facing and will experience going forward is a different one. And Mm. we have to kind of look at the ways in which we can embrace that, the ways in which we can capitalize on it, the ways in which we can harness it for good, which I am just enormously optimistic about. And hopefully it provides us as a society and as a culture with the the impetus to kind of make some really significant and hopefully long-lasting changes in terms of how we function as a humanity and I'm excited for that. Mm. And I think given the extraordinary challenges that we have faced in 2020, how would you conceive of resilience, whether that's at a personal level or professional level? Well, first of all, I think that when you have individually gone through something that has tested you, challenged you, um, disrupted like every single aspect of your life, perhaps the greatest disruption you've experienced during all of this is just simply having to work from home. But Mm -hmm. maybe you've faced kind of financial disruption. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you've had people close to you who have been directly impacted just by the virus. Maybe you've lost loved ones. There has to be a period whereby we treat the trauma because in a way like resilience is 
I think defined perhaps by our ability to be able to endure mm. our ability to be able to persevere or come back from something, some, some kind of hardship. But, but it's important to recognize that like it comes with a certain amount of scar tissue, right? You pick up something along the way and we have to be really dialed into what that actually represents. People are going to have, trauma that they have to deal with people are going to experience ptsd mm. post-covid um and there's going to be an extended period of time where we really have to be investing beyond thinking about how do we tackle the virus we then have to think about how do we tackle the mental health implications of what this pandemic has really meant for people mm. and i think what's important about that is that everybody has been impacted by this in some capacity and so it's important to reach out and make sure that people feel included in the healing process, um, whether they necessarily recognize it in themselves or recognize that it's something that they need to, to address. I mean, post any significant world war, the biggest fallout oftentimes has been PTSD and the, the ways in which that, you know, soldiers coming back from these wars have been able to kind of respond to these experiences and, and oftentimes they had no help. Mm. Um, there were no resources, no services that were really sort of there and available to them to sort of help them process the mental impact and implication of these experiences. And I, I think COVID is going to be absolutely no different and perhaps even more significant just given the kind of size and scale of this particular kind of pandemic. And then the last thing I'll say just about resilience is that I hope that where we can really draw inspiration is from the fact that so many of us have been able to sort of weather this storm, um, have been able to get through it and, you know, begin to kind of see the light and come out the other side. And, and I hope that we can draw inspiration from the fact that we've learned this like really important thing. And that is that we are just extraordinarily resilient and, mm. um, you know, resilience is not necessarily something that you have, within yourself, it's something that you can also draw from the people around you and that sense of unity and connectedness and togetherness um, during this particular time, I think has been a really powerful part of the experience and something that I hope will be a positive thing that we look back on and hopefully something that we take forward into the future. Mm. So one of the things that you've been involved in recently is this fascinating project exploring the relationship between our tech use and empathy. Um, so this has been something that's been a collaboration between Social Media Week, Facebook and the 404. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about what the project is and why it was created? Sure. Well, we, we started talking to Facebook a couple of years ago and they just really said to us, we were talking to their kind of global sort of industry marketing team and they said to us that we'd love to do something with you guys but we really want to do something that kind of stands out something that kind of gives back or makes a very significant contribution to the community something that is more impact focused than necessarily just simply sponsoring one of our conferences for example and so we pitched them on this idea of forming what we call the 404 which is an industry coalition uh, made up of about 50 different organizations within the kind of broader sort of marketing and technology industry. Companies like Adobe, Microsoft, brands like American Express and agencies like um, Group M and Gray and Code and Theory. 
um, these incredible leaders within these organizations who come together as part of this coalition. And the, it's called the 404 because really what we're trying to do is to fix problems that exist as a product of like how we use technology or fix problems that exist as a, as a product of how social media has sort of impacted our lives and impacted mm. society and changed culture. And so Facebook loved it, uh, under sort of wrote the the kind of founding of it and provided sort of resources and support for us to be able to get this kind of coalition off the ground. And then once we got it off the ground, we then started to look at the different problem spaces that we were sort of drawn to or interested in. We looked at obviously mental health. We looked at uh, digital literacy. We looked at cyberbullying. Um, you know, we looked at like misinformation and particularly kind of within that concerns around deep fakes and stuff like that hmm. and knowing that we wouldn't be able to tackle everything and knowing that we would need to pick off something that that, that we were excited about and that we think was kind of very relevant and this is back in like you know early 2019 we decided that within the mental health area and then drilling down into kind of understanding what's really going on in kind of cyberbullying, for example, and unpacking that, what we discovered, and we came across some really interesting kind of research that came out of the University of Michigan, was that empathy as a foundational skill has been in decline, particularly among young people, hmm. young adolescents and particularly young people who are about to embark upon their college careers and experience. And, and it's been in decline for the last like 20 years, fairly consistently. And when you unpack that and you look at kind of some of the reasons why, you know, obviously, and, and, and it, it's easy to sort of just blame technology or social media or mobile phones for this, but it really only represents one aspect of this like much larger issue there are some societal kind of factors and forces at play as well to do with the fact that we have evolved as a society and as a culture into a much more individualistic society, you know, where we place a great deal of importance on the individual and not so much on the collective, mm -hmm. right? The sense of community has also been in decline, you know, for decades now. And when you put all of these different factors and forces together, you can sort of understand why the problem exists, but then you have to understand, well, okay, so how is this like playing out? You know, how is it actually impacting people um, and their interactions? And that's where I think social media starts to kind of come into play because we're spending so much time engaging and interacting and communicating and sharing and consuming information through social media. And because of the fact that it's a faceless medium, um, and in some cases, because of the fact it's very easy and straightforward and frictionless almost to be able to say something in the moment mm. that you may or may not believe or you may or may not mean, what we are communicating is starting to have this like eroding effect on our ability to be truly empathetic. And that is to say to perspective take before we communicate, mm -hmm. to really put ourselves in the shoes of the people that we are communicating with, whether it's through a mobile messaging app, right, which is just maybe a group of your school friends, but you say something mean or hurtful or nasty because you don't get to see the reaction of the other person on the other side of that interaction. Mm. You don't get to see the fact that it just makes them really unhappy and sad. 
that you would say something like this, but you say it because it's easy, it's frictionless. And then you kind of extrapolate from those interactions into the larger social media stratosphere Mm. (laughs) and think about Twitter and you think about Facebook and the problems that we've experienced there. And you can really start to understand over time how it's easy for people to be less empathetic, um, take less perspective to not put yourselves in the, in the shoes of others. So what we basically decided to do is to say, okay, well, how do we impact? How do we, how do we help young people, particularly those that are onboarding to social media for the first time? How can we help them develop the empathetic skills? Because em- empathy is a, a skill. It's something you can learn, something you can teach, something you can invest in over time to get better at. But if it's not taught, if you're not, if you don't have the framework, if it's not something that you practice every day, then then it's not something that we're necessarily going to be able to impact. So we, I know this is going long, but (laughs) we then decided to develop a whole program where we would bring high school students into workshops that were hosted by these industry organizations who are part of the 404. And then we would have experts, not just teach empathy, but, but actually run these incredible like interactive workshops whereby the kids themselves are the ones that are really coming up with the ideas and solutions for how they can kind of increase empathy within their communities and within their schools and within their friend groups. And and it was just an amazing program that we ran last year. And then this year, it was really a case of just looking to kind of expand that program, working with the Department of Education to kind of roll it out amongst a few hundred schools in New York Mm. City. But unfortunately, we had to kind of hit the pause button on that and just around... (laughs) when COVID hit and and then we sort of subsequently pivoted into a different sort of iteration of the project. Mm. It's really interesting the the relationship between our technology use and developing the skills for becoming more empathetic to be able to perspective take, as you point out. I think one of the things that's really curious is going to be to see what impact the use of tech-mediated communication has over this period, however long the lockdown period lasts, because every time we make a prediction, it extends, to see what impact it has over the longer term in terms of personal interactions, friendships, the way that businesses operate. And I'm curious in terms of the impact that virtual communication has had on the culture of organisations, perhaps in your capacity as running you know, Social Media Week and having to take the entire enterprise online, what are some of the biggest challenges that you think exist or that you've faced in taking a culture and an organisation into virtual relationship? Well, I, I think the pandemic, the fact that hundreds of millions of people have had to make this sudden shift towards working from home or working remotely and and then Mm -hmm. adopting video conferencing as like a primary tool for communication has actually been the greatest gift, I think, that we've been given through this experience. And I'll explain why because a lot of people who spend a lot of time on Zoom might be thinking that that's not the case. And I, and I do understand, or at least I'm sensitive to why they would feel that way. But the reason why it's, it's a gift is because if we had said at the beginning, the beginning of this experience, pre-COVID, but n- with no knowledge of how COVID would sort of impact our lives, how do we humanize technology? How do we provide a better means of communication if we are communicating with people digitally through technology, not in person, not face-to-face, how do we bring a more human side to that communication? Mm. And 
the answer would be, well, video is obviously really important. Live video where you can see the other person's face, where you can see their reaction, where you can connect to them in a way that just simply is not possible on a phone or through messaging. But we need to get people to adopt this new technology, this new means of communication en masse. Like everybody needs to be communicating this way for us to be able to learn a new behavior and connect to a new form of communication And we need to do that over a sustained amount of time so that people can get used to it and comfortable with it. And then Mm -hmm. start, once they've made that initial adjustment, start to think about the ways in which you can optimize the experience to create the best possible and potentially deepest connected experience. And guess what? That's what we've just spent the last nine months doing. And so this has been an enormous global experiment Mm. consisting of hundreds of millions of people around the world participating simultaneously. And so while we are fatigued by the experience and it is exhausting and sometimes the last thing you want to do is to get on another Zoom call, what this has provided for us foundationally is something that we can now build on top of in terms of thinking about how we want to kind of design and create connected experiences in the future. Mm-hmm. Because what's important about that, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this recently, is that our physical proximity to people used to be such a hugely outweighed factor in our happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why people gravitate towards living in cities like New York, for example, because you know you're connected to people who are like you, um, who can be supportive to you, who can be supportive to your career professionally or otherwise. And if you don't live in New York City, you are at a disadvantage in many ways. I mean, there's enough science out there to kind of back up this idea that people are generally happy living in cities than they are in rural Hmm. environments. But that's largely because of who you are in proximity to, who you're connected to and surrounded by. And I think that this shift we're seeing offers an alternative to that, which means that you can be in proximity to the people that matter to you or be in proximity to the people who will shape who you want to be. You know, it enables us to curate our lives and our experiences and the people we spend time with, but not on the basis that we have to be in the physical proximity to them. Instead, we can do it virtually. And I think, you know, and I'm sure there are just like so many red flags here. Hmm. And it's not that I'm not thinking about them, but I just want to at least spend time thinking about how this can be a good thing and how can it be positive and what can we draw from it to really help us think about optimizing kind of the human experience in the future. I like what you're saying there about this is a possibility to optimize the experience to make it deeper. It's so good to be able to have access to our loved ones, even if it's virtually when we can't reach out and spend time celebrating Christmas together or birthdays together or commiserating or whatever it might be. But on the flip side, of course, we lose so much when we migrate into a virtual two-dimensional space in which so much of that sense of sensory expression, whether it's taste or touch or pressure or hugs, all of that stuff gets stripped out. So I'm wondering, have you found any specific things that 
have been useful in creating a richer experience when interacting online? Totally. I can give you a ton of examples. I just want to kind of address the point you made, because this is the argument that I'm having with a lot of people all the time, which is this idea that it has to be one or the other, Mm. that somehow just because of what we're experiencing now, and because we have access to kind of these new virtual experiences, that somehow we are then therefore going to discount the importance of in-person it's Mm. like no (laughs) we should we should invest in and maintain and ensure that we have as much if not more in-person experiences when we can and when it's possible and when it's safe to do so but what I'm saying is that we have an opportunity to add on this like enhancement pack (laughs) to the human experience I'll give you a good example of, of of what I mean a number of examples, in fact. So first of all, you know, I live in the US, my, my parents live in the UK, my, my brother and my sister-in-law, uh, my parents haven't got to see my kids for 18 months now, mm. largely because of the pandemic. And, you know, that's challenging for them, for sure, or for all of us. But the truth is, right now, at this point, you know, I'm not sure whether I would be going back to the UK or not, mm. regardless of COVID, right? So we probably would be spending kind of Christmas apart. And so what does Christmas apart look like pre pandemic? It's kind of like, you know, a quick FaceTime on Christmas day. Hey, what's up? How you doing? Maybe we'll open some presents together. But now we've sort of unlocked this new set of experiences combined with, and I think this is the most important thing, the fact that my 74 year old mom conducts all of her church choir practices on zoom now (laughs) because they can't gather at the church she understands the technology she's adopted she's adapted to the kind of new way of doing things so on christmas eve we're going to have a whole family gathering on zoom we're going to have christmas carols we're going to be like doing cocktail making (laughs) we're going to open some presents together i'm inviting a whole bunch more people that i probably wouldn't pull into the situation and while of course it's not the same as being in person and and while we would all prefer to be in person the pandemic has created a new opportunity for us to gather in different ways and the technology is making it possible for us to do it regardless of whether you are a 74 year old or whether you're a (laughs) four-year-old you know what I mean and so that's, I think, important. So that's just kind of you know context in terms of how I'm trying to sort of capitalize and, and optimize these experiences. But I'll also give you another example more in the corporate setting. So in addition to running and operating Social Media Week, we also produce live events on behalf of our clients, oftentimes kind of custom bespoke sort of you know experiences. And we've been doing everything virtually over the course of this year. And we did an event for one of our clients back in November. It's like a customer appreciation event for them. They had about 200 of their customers completely spread out over the US. They wanted to bring them together, celebrate them, show their appreciation. We put on this huge event, all kind of on Zoom, but like using all these different enhanced tools and functionality. Mm -hmm. We sent every single person a gift pack in advance with wine and champagne and charcuterie and and, and chocolate (laughs) and other sort of gifts. And then we had a world-class like wine sommelier come on and do like a wine tasting with 180 people simultaneously opening kind of a bottle of champagne together. (laughs) Then we split everybody up into groups and we had six different secret room experiences with like a comedy show and we we did a choose your own adventure rap musical yeah. we had five magicians you know and we put on this whole show entirely virtually for these 200 customers and you know the, what we realized in the conclusion to the whole experience was well 
clearly we could never have done that if mm. if we were only looking at an in-person experience. You know, we could have flown everyone to Vegas, I suppose, or flown everyone to New York and rented out a bar, but it just would have been such a, a less interesting and, and most importantly, less valuable experience, particularly for the individuals, but also for the client. And so what you have to look at at this time, going back to my earlier point, don't look at it as in like, you know, either in person or virtual. Look at it in terms of how can the virtual experience address the limitations mm. of in-person in such a way so that the experience could even potentially be better mm. as a result. It's always going to be missing something, missing the opportunity to like hug or handshake or just be in physical kind of proximity to people. But you know, you can replace that with a whole bunch of other things that like make the experience better or, or just different. Mm. I like the idea of finding ways to make the most of what there is to offer and bringing the virtual and the sensory together. So there is a way of localizing the experience in someone's physical domain by buying the the wine and having people guide you through a process which you might have privately but you share virtually i think that's that's a really beautiful way of bridging something across media yeah it's a, it's a logistics nightmare and but you know generally speaking if you put on a, a virtual event for 100 people that they're not paying for about 70 percent of them will not turn up yeah, yeah with this particular event i think we had about 90 percent of people turned wow. up because of, we shipped them like hundreds of dollars worth of like <laughs> Um, things that were designed to make this experience that much better. And so, you know, it was kind of an interesting experiment. From that perspective then, do you think that there is an opportunity here for people to become even more creative in the ways that they approach the customer business relationship, the way that they approach client relationships? So this sort of investing in people's sensory pleasures while creating a bespoke experience for them all, and in some cases highly personalised when it's the personalised rap journey that you described, which I attended, which was really fun. Do you think that there's the possibility for brands to really just get creative and make things that previously we just didn't think were possible? Well, I think we've already seen it. I think actually when we look back over the course of this year, there have just been so many incredible examples, you know, whether it's artists or creator partnerships with brands doing really interesting things on Fortnite and stuff like that. Another example that I think has just, you know, been so interesting is seeing how like complex and complex con, which is just an, a hugely important cultural event for sort of sneaker heads and people who are into that kind of culture would normally come together and it would be a huge opportunity to purchase the kind of the latest things, whether it's sneakers or something else related to that. And they moved the whole thing online and it was delivered virtually. And then all of a sudden it was just a just a completely different experience, but like incredible in its own right. So I think we've seen it, you know, we've seen the creativity and the resourcefulness and innovation in terms of thinking about how do we create experiences for people that like speak to the medium through which they are going to be engaging with, mm -hmm. but that also really deliver, deliver results, however you kind of measure the success of something. So we've seen a ton already. And I think um, one of the things that I have loved about this year, <laughs> um, despite everything, has been seeing how brands in particular but just people in general have used this opportunity you know once we got past I think this sort of shock at the beginning and this just how devastating everything felt as we sort of came out of the first wave a little bit and said okay this this is kind of the way it's going to be for a while that's when we started to see such inventiveness and such resourcefulness I think this year will probably go down as 
is one where people have found a very deep connection to their creativity in almost every facet of business and music and entertainment. And the reason why is because we've been delivered or presented with constraint. And constraint, Mm. I think, is an important vehicle for creativity. Mm. So talking about then the way in which this intersects with the future of work, obviously in 2020, as the CEO of SMW, you were faced with the gargantuan task of taking the whole business online. And you did an amazing job of guiding this transition. I wonder what you imagine the future of work will look like, not just in terms of how we might deliver services differently, so like the virtual aspect, but also what a hybrid version might look like. So I'm thinking here about how people might use physical spaces, so the changing role of office buildings, or how people might conceive of corporate events, whether they do again, as kind of virtual physical hybrid, or whether they might be in-person events that are more consciously designed, intentionally designed as culture building and engagement exercises. What are your thoughts around the future of work and the hybrid workplace? Well, I think let's start with my kind of prediction in terms of like what it's going to look like post-pandemic when it's safe for people to return to offices, when enough people have had the vaccine, when enough measures are in place to continue to kind of test and trace. Because I think the cat is out of the bag or the bell has mm-hmm. rung on kind of the sort of idea of, of remote work or, or at least the resistance to it from a sort of a, a company level or even from an individual level. And this may be a sort of a little bit of an oversimplification, but at least helps people understand at least how I'm thinking about the future. My sort of prediction is that about a third of people are going to want to go back to working in an office full time. The type of, of people that will want to go back full time, dependent on their age, I think younger people might be more inclined to be in an office, to be connected to other people. Early in your career, it's really important because you're building relationships and you're building your network and you know you, you want to be out and, and socializing so much more. And I think the office provides a really important anchor to that experience. Mm. And I will say, you know, maybe sort of senior executives or leadership, you know, might need to be in the office more, but I don't know whether they need to be in the office the whole time. But let's say a third will want to go back full-time about a third will probably want some flexibility right so they will be like okay look I've just spent a year working remotely or a year and a half working from my home and then there are some pluses and minuses to it but I don't want to work full-time from home I want to have some time in the office but I want the flexibility so I'll come in a couple of days a week and then a third of people will want to just be fully remote in fact you know they've already moved to Nashville from New York and have said to their (laughs) boss I ain't coming back And their boss is like, Mm. okay, fine, because (laughs) there is a general recognition that flexibility, whether it's working fully remote or working in some kind of hybrid capacity, is is important to people, probably more important than almost any other benefit that you can provide them. My company has been working in this way for six years. We've offered people the opportunity to work from home Wednesdays, Fridays. It's optional. And Wednesday, we, we, Wednesday was intended to be pre-pandemic, a sort of a meeting-free day. So the, you, know, you hit the middle of the week, you're working from home, you don't have any meetings. That's when you can really be at your absolute optimal level of productivity. Hmm. 
And we did that for six years and people loved it. People really saw it as a benefit. They loved that flexibility. We also had a policy of not dictating to people when they would like come into work or leave. In fact, we often would encourage people to not come in during commuter time because it's just a stressful experience or it can often just result in delays and things like that. Mm. So offering people flexibility is ultimately like what people want. And then we now are in a situation when people can ask for it more legitimately because the, <laughs> the organizations can hardly turn around and go, well, we're concerned about your levels of productivity if you're working from home. It's like, look, I've pretty much demonstrated that I can crush it from home. <laughs> so let's not have that conversation. So then what does that really mean in terms of how it will, because like, it's a little bit like driverless cars and the way in which it's going to fundamentally change the design of urban environments in the future. Mm. I think that like people working remotely will change the way that offices are designed, right? This whole idea of just having a desk and meeting rooms, it just almost sort of feels antiquated now and, and perhaps not even kind of set up to accommodate a future whereby only two thirds of people are going to be coming to the office and only a third of people are going to be office the whole time. And where I see the biggest challenge in all of this, and it's a really difficult problem to solve, um, and I don't think anyone has figured it out yet, is like, well, what does that hybrid experience look like? Because everybody working from home actually works because you're all on Zoom. You're all in the same kind of setup and situation. Collaboration and communication flows through the same mediums and you have the same experiences but you know what's the worst experience is sitting in a conference room when half the people are in the room and half the people are virtual <laughs> that's a horrible dynamic right so we we have to solve for problems that will naturally exist as a product of the fact that people will be hybrid and some will be remote and some will be in the office and the other thing that we have to think about and design for is the type of work right, that we do in the office versus the type of work we do at home or the type of work that we do when we need to be together in physical proximity to each other versus the type of work mm. that we can do virtually. And we have to understand all of this stuff. I would encourage your, your listeners to look at kind of the work that Dropbox has been doing and the CEO of Dropbox in particular has like really sort of led during this time and has come out and with some really sort of interesting ideas and his whole new methodology, I suppose, that he's developing is, is a hybrid first methodology in terms of thinking about the future of work, which I think is the right way to think about it. Okay, so then if we're thinking in terms of community and creating a sense of culture, do you think that's something which can be fostered virtually? Because I know that there was a, an NPR article that I read recently that was talking about how Facebook, for example, is leasing all the office space at this gorgeous New York landmark, which is the former James A. Farley post office building. And that Amazon, which I believe has said that employees can work from home until early 2021, they have apparently bought the Marquis Lord and Taylor building on Manhattan's Fifth Avenue and leased another 2 million square feet in Bellevue in Washington. Since these massive players, which are obviously titans of the tech industry, are finding value in physical space, do you think they know something that we don't? Is there something about the needs that we will have that we don't yet see coming? <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, let's put like the Facebooks and the Amazons of this world in their own outlier category, <laughs> I think, yeah. because... I don't know how much we can really draw from those companies in terms of understanding how the rest of us 
will be thinking about the future or thinking about kind of offices or office space. You know, it's hard to speak to the kind of the strategies specifically. Um, I mean, Facebook is a client, but I really don't have any insider take on how they're thinking about the future. I, I do know this during the pandemic, they've been pretty much one of the first companies to, um, you know, to cancel all in-person gatherings through mm-hmm. the end of 2021. They've been one of the first companies to give their teams permission to kind of work from home somewhat like indefinitely. And I'm sure they're going to be the type of company that will be like not demanding that people come back to the office, you know, anytime soon and, and post-pandemic. But in a way, I think a, an investment in physical space is it just as important as our investment into thinking about how we operate and work remotely. Mm. And the reason for that, and going back to what I was saying before, two thirds of people are still going to want to come to an office. Yeah, yeah. And you know, those <laughs> companies in particular are like some of the fastest growing companies in the world. And so, you know, they just need space to accommodate the growth of the organizations. But also you're talking about cities um, like New York, for example, which mm. will just always be an international hub, a, a kind of a meeting point, a place where people will want to convene coming in and traveling from sort of other parts of the world. So I can imagine that's another reason why they would be looking to invest in, mm. in, in more square footage. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting play. And I think it's one of these things which I think of quite a lot in terms of how we meet our competing needs, you know, sort of the desire for flexibility from at work, the desire to be able to to leave the flat share or leave the kids um, or leave the spouse or the partner or flatmates to be able to have a space that you can go to and just to leave your your home behind and not have to deal with, I don't know, trickiness in terms of physical and time-based boundaries. I think it's just so important to kind of understand a couple of things here about that. Like one... We, we need to stop talking in like absolute mm. terms. It feels like it feels like things are absolute when you're basically experiencing a pandemic and you can't go anywhere or do anything. But the future isn't absolute. The future is going to be a, an iteration on the past, an iteration on how things were. Um, and we're talking about actually in percentage terms, probably like relatively small um, adjustments to how we work and where we work and the degree to which we have flexibility in how we work. But those small adjustments, when you kind of look at them across the board, will obviously lead to substantial behavior change. Mm. I think that's important for us to kind of spend time thinking about because let me give you another quick example, right? Let's say the big five to 10,000 person company that sends a couple thousand of its sales team to like Las Vegas for a sales kickoff at the beginning of every year, right? Isn't going to be doing that in 2021, but also simultaneous to that is thinking, should we be doing that at all? Or what should we be doing in the future? And the truth of the matter is, when things open up again and we have the capacity and ability to do these sorts of things, you're going to be asking yourself a really important question. Is it essential? Because if it's not essential, then it's not worthwhile. Mm. And when you're looking at kind of ways in which you can save money, but also simultaneous to that create better experiences, these big companies are going to be all in on the new way of being able to uh, for example, convene a couple thousand of their sales team for their annual sales kickoff. Yeah, indeed. If we're thinking about what's going to be vital to the long-term success of businesses, especially given the amount of uncertainty and how we've seen that one of the most important skills is the ability to adapt, what would you suggest is most critical for a business to be able to embody or to do? recognizing that talent is everywhere and not necessarily concentrated in the large 
and most sort of you know significant markets like New York, San Francisco, LA, Chicago, etc. Mm-hmm. Once we once we recognize that the talent already existed everywhere, and we're now seeing, in addition to that, a, a huge migration of talent leaving these big cities and looking to go elsewhere because they can. Um, this then becomes the greatest opportunity for these organizations to be thinking about who they hire, not based on where they live, but but based on their fit for the role, um, mm. fit in terms of culture, ability to work effectively, but remotely, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the one of the most important things to acknowledge is the fact there's talent everywhere mm-hmm. and now there's an opportunity to access that talent, mm-hmm. um, you know, regardless of, of where they are geographically. Mm. And so then to finish on this note, what kind of world would you like to build? Well, you know, I think there was a moment early in, in the pandemic where I got a glimpse into a world that I was just so enormously inspired by and you know it's not necessarily been maintained since then but that little glimpse into the capacity of people to be empathetic and Mm -hmm. the capacity of people to reach out and find opportunities to connect even though we're not together and the outpouring of support and recognition of essential workers and and the ways in which we, you know, at every imaginable level, pulled together for each other, took care of each other, and were able to do so because of technology, for me, helped me reset my own core belief that technology has always and will continue to play a fundamentally role in terms of how we connect and communicate. And when we apply it, appropriately and in the right way and with empathy there's an opportunity to use technology for good and that's the glimpse that I saw that I think got overshadowed by other things elections and other such major events the divisiveness of mask wearing and all of that stuff but like it's there it exists and people are good and technology is a tool that can be used to advance our capacity to be empathetic and empathy i believe is at the absolute foundational level of being human Mm. and i would even say if you want to unpack that even more because i've seen this at every level i've seen this among celebrities i've seen this among corporate executives i've seen this you know even amongst my friends as we've connected and shared our experiences is that actually the precursor to empathy is vulnerability Hmm. and to be vulnerable is to be empathetic and that's where we have to start and you know as I said before recognizing that technology is just a tool but when used and applied appropriately it can be an enormously effective tool for good. Wonderful and um if people are listening to this and they're feeling inspired, which I'm sure they are, and you wanted to give them one action or practice that they could engage in to move them more towards that space of a future world, which is empathetic, what would that practice or tool be? Well, it, it is something that I'm working on myself in recognizing that 
you know, I have so much capacity for non-judgment that I feel is hugely like underutilized. Mm. You know, we live in a society where it's just so easy to judge and, and, and be judgmental of others. But I think if we can lean into the idea of non-judgment, if we can, and, and it speaks to kind of empathy, but I think the practice of non-judgment is really about taking a breath before we act or communicate in such a way that could really sort of negatively impact the other person's experience. And so practicing non-judgment, I think, is key. Mm. I think practicing connected to that, the art of being vulnerable with everybody, people who are close to you and, and, and even your coworkers, you know, can ultimately lead us down a path towards a greater sense of, of empathy for the people in the world around us. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the themes we explored, please visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you've enjoyed the series, please do share it with your friends and give it a rating or review. And for more insights and insider tips, you can join my newsletter as well. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.